my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm speaking with Frank Forensic. Frank is an internationally recognized leader in health and performance education. He earned his bachelor's at Stanford University in human biology and neuroscience and has over 30 years of teaching experience in martial arts and health education. Frank holds black belt rankings in karate and Aikido and has traveled to Africa on several occasions to study human origins and the ancestral environment. He's presented at numerous venues, including the Ancestral Health Symposium, Google, the Dr. Robert D. Kahn Heart Conference, and the Institute of Design at Stanford University. He is a former columnist for Paleo Magazine. Uh, Frank is the author of numerous books about health and the human predicament, and he's a member of the, the Council of Elders at the Mind-Body Ecology Collective and a diplomat member at the American Institute of Stress. Now, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on the show, Frank, and uh, just really dig in. I've, I've talked to numerous people uh, about leading in high stress environments. And, and I feel like I'm talking to somebody that is very adept at, at well, discussing that, teaching others about it. And uh, I'm just thrilled to have you on the show. So thank you. Well, I'm delighted to be on with you. And uh, I think we have a lot to talk about. So we can, we can just dig in. All right. Well, well, first, I want to get a a sense of like your background, you know, where you grew up, um, maybe some of your early influences, what kind of led you on this path? Um, what led you to be interested in, in what you are so passionate about right now? Right. Well, growing up in California in the Bay Area, and this, this was a time of the late 1960s, a lot of social upheaval and a lot of creativity. And I got involved in the martial arts early on. I was in my early 20s. I was going to college at the time. And I became really fascinated with the human body and how it behaves. And in college, I studied some anatomy and physiology and that sort of thing. But what really hit home for me was the study of human evolution. And I had a professor who said, look, if you're really interested in the body, you really need to go to Africa to study human evolution. And I said, well, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> and so I went and it was a tremendous turn on for me because I was able to go out with the Bushmen and actually see hunter gatherers in action. And that's something that you just don't ever forget. So that became a reference point for me where I was able to compare all of my modern experiences with that. And I got involved in rock climbing, mountain climbing. I went to massage school. I studied athletic training and now the whole thing has kind of fallen together into a single package, which I'm trying to share with people. And I, I find it just really exciting. This kind of evolution of your understanding of, of human origin and, and you know, humankind's evolution, uh, it, it's really interesting to me as well. And uh, I, I'd like to understand the the role in you know traveling with the bushmen and and how you were able to relate their actions and their way of life to you know where we are now and how we deal with stress and and just how our our body responds to stress right well when you look at the lives of the Bushmen and 
just to be clear, I only went out with one or two tribes for pretty short durations of time. So I'm not an expert on tribal living in the paleo exactly. I've read quite a bit and had the, the, a little bit of experience. But extrapolating from that, you look at our paleo ancestry as a time of both big challenge, but also a lifestyle that was very conducive to health. So we would have stressors in a tribal environment. And typically those would be stressors that were easy to understand. When you had a carnivore encounter, an encounter with a predator, a lion, or another large animal, a hippo, a rhino, that sort of thing, that was a stressor, but it was easy to understand. It made sense. And maybe you were stressed because of a wildfire or maybe trouble finding food or having to cross a fast river or something like that, or maybe an altercation with another tribe. These were always stressors that were easy to comprehend. They were coherent. And you contrast that with what we have in the modern world. And so many of our of today's stressors are vague or they're multi-layered or they're hard to understand. What do you do with a computer virus? How come there's so much fine print we have to navigate in the modern world? All these things, uh, pandemics, viruses, and microorganisms that you can't even see. And you start to realize that the stresses we have now are far more difficult to deal with. And they're much more chronic than they were back in the paleo. So whereas our paleo ancestors could go out on a hunt and have significant amount of stress and then come back to camp and rest for two or three or five or 10 days while they heal up and things are going to be good. This is what's called the paleolithic rhythm. But today our stressors are chronic and we don't have enough time to recharge and rest. And that's I think the crux of the issue right now. So it's a, it's a big contrast with, with our origins. So my, my background being in the fire service, you know, we would work a 24 hour shift and then we'd have 48 hours off. Mm -hmm. And the idea, well, there's a, several different theories and I don't, I'm sure somebody out there knows why it's like that 24 48. Um, there's supposed to be some kind of science behind, okay, if you fight some fire and you've got all these toxins in your body, it'll take, you know, 24 to 48 hours to get all that out of your system. And also give you time to recharge your batteries if you've been up for 24 hours. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I, I don't believe that that is sufficient for the amount of uh, danger and, and really just stress that is involved with running emergency after emergency after emergency. You know what I mean? Right. And this is where we can borrow from the athletic world because the athletic coach, the modern athletic coach understands this really well. And the whole idea is to stress the athlete as hard as you can, real deep, serious conditioning and training, and then follow that up with deep rest. And the longer the rest, the better. And what the discovery, I think, in modern athletic training is that more rest is really beneficial. And the problem is in our various professions and disciplines and industries, and that we take a lot of our pacing from tradition and not from an understanding of the human body. So it, things like the five day work week, for example, that is just by tradition. We're not looking at the physiology of the human animal as our reference point. So people get involved in these situations where they're working far too hard and have nowhere near enough rest time. Now, the thing that's promising about fire departments in general is that they seem willing to look at the human animal and they say, okay, how can we structure the time on and the time off? And taking our understanding of the human animal, now we can structure our scheduling to make sense. But I think the fire departments are kind of an outlier in this because other professions don't do that. 
we just we have this work ethic and the more is always better and that just that's not the case <laughs> yeah well and i think and there is uh like the dark side of that schedule is that while you're you're working a 24-hour shift and then you've got 48 hours off a lot of public safety professionals have side gigs mm. so on those days off they're working another job right to make right. ends meet so they're not really resting or they're working overtime so they'll work 48 hours straight right and, right and so that's uh that's part of the issue with you know firefighters uh, and really some some horrible health uh, problems with with cancers and heart disease and um, lung disease and PTSD. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, and I think it helps to look at all of these these chronic conditions as being historically abnormal. This is not the way the human animal typically functions. And for me, I was really fortunate because I was able to go to Gombe, Tanzania, which is where Jane Goodall did her work with the chimpanzees. And you go out in the forest and you can see the chimpanzees and you watch them live their lives and they play, they hunt, they mate, they do, they explore, they do all the kind of things you would imagine chimpanzees to do, but then they rest like crazy. I mean, they go to bed early and they take all the time that they need to rest. And that's, that's a great role model there. They're our closest um, cousins in the, in the primate world and they know how to do it. So we could take them as role models. Is there any uh, hope for um, if we continue the model that we currently follow, that our bodies will adjust and we'll be able to work as hard as we have been with, you know, as little rest? Uh, I, I think that's unlikely because we are animals and I think that every other mammal has a similar nervous system, a similar autonomic nervous system. And if you put these creatures under chronic stress, they are going to have health problems. And I suppose over a vast expanse of time, something could change. But for now, we have to take the animal seriously. And that means giving... Uh, giving people rest and listening to what they say and how they tell their stories about their experience. There's, there's a certain movement afoot to measure people's stress hormone levels. And I think this makes a certain amount of sense, but you can also get a lot of good information simply by talking to people and slowing down and listening to how they describe their lives. And by doing so, you're going to be able to get a pretty good sense of what their stress levels are like. And in turn, then honor that and help them to do less. With all of the organizations that you've um worked with and 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 helped you know evolve their culture what um what do you feel it has been the most successful for you in uh really getting organizations to move in that direction right well in general they they don't. I mean, that's the the emphasis now and in in our culture is so biased towards productivity. We take that as a measure of human worth. And so that's something that is that needs to change. And it's very difficult to change. I mean, even in the medical profession, where we, we have people who should know better, but we overwork our doctors and our nurses and all our healthcare people are overworked and they need more support. So I just try and keep reiterating this over and over again with the athletic model and the, the train hard rest deep model that, that bears repeating. We're getting good 
input from the yoga community and the meditation community and the stress relief community who are also given the same message how we need to recharge and rebuild our lives so now <clears throat> it's funny that you should bring up yoga i mean with your experience with martial arts and uh, you know there is a spiritual side to it mm -hmm. and when when i've talked to other martial artists that you know have the kind of experience that you do they talk about that mind body connection and not really like uh i don't know that they refer to it as a, a you know, like a type of spirituality, but um, there, I feel like when you train in those arts, you tend to get in tune with your body a lot more. Mm -hmm. Yes, and there's, well, first of all, when we talk about martial arts, there's a big diversity of people who study and a lot of diversity uh, amongst teachers and the messaging. But nevertheless, it's, I love it. It's a great discipline. It's a great study. And yes, the, the number one thing that people talk about is integration, integration of, for example, the hips talking to the shoulders. I mean, that, that's a common theme, getting the whole body orchestrated to produce a single movement. Bruce Lee used to talk about this all the time. But then also the integration of mind, body, spirit, that's a common theme also in yoga. The problem is we're up against a culture that is very Cartesian. And in, for this, I take people back on a little bit of a journey to the philosopher Rene Descartes. And he was the, the guy who, who coined this phrase, I think, therefore I am. And he was, you might say, the pioneer in this this disintegration of mind and body he really believed that mind and body were two separate things and as a culture as a people we went all in on that that became sort of a, um, a founding principle of the scientific revolution and so now we structure academics and professions and a lot of our disciplines now are structured as if the mind and body are two separate things. If you go to a scientific conference, you hear people talking at the podium and not involving their bodies at all. And that is a, um, that's a very Cartesian approach. So for us in the movement arts, we're fighting kind of an uphill battle against that. We're, we're trying to bring the body back into participation and we still have a ways to go with this. And the other part of this too is that modern neuroscience shows us without question that the mind and body are just simply two reflections of the same thing and that you can't really disintegrate it. It's, um, they're always talking to one another. So that's what we're up against. Yeah, no, I've, I've had these, um, these really interesting conversations with, well, uh, there, there was one interview I did with a, uh, a former monk who now coaches high level executives and uh, how he works with them to reconnect that mind body connection. Right. And, uh, you know, through meditation and, and really going deep. Right. And of course, the, the breath is the place to go for all of that, because the breath is that lies right at the very center of the mind body interface. So every time you pay attention to your breath, you're bringing the mind and body back together again. And that it seems so familiar and so simple that we tend to discount it but it really is a powerful practice and that's the great thing about breath work is that you don't need to be an expert in meditation and you don't need a credential i had one meditation teacher who said the whole thing is very simple you you sit down you shut up and you pay attention 
That's all it is. You pay attention to your breath, take the time to do it. And this is something that can be integrated into fire departments, police departments, any kind of profession can carve out the time and make room for this to happen. So it's easy and it's accessible. One of the things that I've, I've talked about, uh, actually, I, I wrote about it, um, <clears throat> is that, you know, in, in high stress environments, especially when, you know, I'll, and I'll just talk about myself. So as a fire officer or as a battalion chief, when, whenever I was on a, a large operation where there was a lot of moving parts, mm -hmm. a lot of information coming in all at once, and you've got to make quick decisions with you know, a limited amount of information. So as you can imagine, you're your heart rate is jacked, you know, your body dumps those stress hormones. And, uh, and if that reptilian brain takes over where you, you focus, you know, you can end up with tunnel vision where you're not uh, registering everything that's going on around you. You're focusing on one element of a much larger picture. And the way to bring yourself back to the moment and to be able to see the big picture, um, to reconnect your primitive brain to your, your uh, frontal cortex mm -hmm. or, is to pause and breathe. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And it's so much of this, you can boil it down to expansion and contraction of not just our breath and the body, but also our cognition and, and what we pay attention to. And of course, that's a, a, a hallmark of stress is that cognition and attention tend to contract and get smaller and smaller. And you're looking at smaller and smaller things. And now all of a sudden you lose sight of the big picture. And this is happening all over modern culture where we, we are losing sight of that big picture. But it also speaks to the importance of training because if you train really hard and really discipline that's going to hold true in these high stress environments and i'm sure you see that in in firefighting but it, yeah. it's true in every discipline i've done a lot of mountain climbing and it's the same thing you get involved in a high stress situation where maybe you have rockfall or the weather's getting bad your training that you did with the ropes and the hardware and the the belaying and all this stuff you have to be able to fall back on that. And if you can, if your, your training's been good, then you can keep your attention open and you can look further ahead and further behind and you can perform still at a high level. So training is essential. What inspired you to write your book? That's easy in the sense that I understood from my athletic training that understanding stress is really important. I mean, you're never going to be a good athlete unless you understand how stress works. But then I went to massage school and there was a lot of talk about stress. And I observed the various narratives out in popular culture about stress. And in particular, I looked at the, um, the magazines at the checkout counter at the supermarket. And you go through the, the checkout counter and you always see magazines, lifestyle magazines, and they almost always have an article about stress. And they're all kind of the same because they promise to make your stress go away. And this has become the standard narrative, right? You, you, you see this around, you hear it all over the place. Here's a product or a service or a practice that can make your stress go away. And I got to thinking about that and it was like, do, do I really want my stress to go away? Is that possible or is it desirable? And I thought, well, well, no, because stress makes life interesting. And that encounter with stress can be really productive. 
stress becomes a frenemy. It obviously is a problem when it becomes too extreme or too chronic, but stress can be a wonderful thing. And when you explore it more deeply, you realize that stress has these incredibly beneficial effects on the body and the mind. And if you can keep your stress at the right level and stay in that sweet spot, then stress does all these great things for your mind, your body, your performance, and it's really a wonderful thing. So what I've noticed out in the popular world is that we really misunderstand stress. And what I'm trying to do in the book is help people understand it in a way that's more, uh, more accurate and more beneficial. The title of your book alludes to, I'm guessing, the, the, the false narrative that, that all stress is bad. Right. And also making, making a judgment call on the things in our lives that give us trouble. So on any given day, you might be worried about such and such. You're worried about this thing that's giving you trouble. And I encourage people to, from the title of the book, beware of false tigers. So ask yourself, is this thing that you're worried about, is it a real tiger? Is it an actual threat to your life? And if the answer is yes, well, you should be doing something about that. You should be taking action and you should be listening to that stress. But if the answer is no, then you can safely let that go, at least for a while. And this, is, this has been very helpful for, for me personally, because I get, just like everybody else, I get wrapped up in a stress cycle, and I'm worried about such and such a thing. And then I stop and say, is this a real tiger? Well, no, it's not. I can let it go. Or maybe it is. So I need to explore this further. What is the voice of stress trying to tell me here? And that exploration, that listening to the voice of stress can be really powerful. I didn't actually count the number of books that you've written because you've written quite a few. Mm -hmm. how, how many books have you written actually? Oh, it's about half a dozen now. And they're all kind of pointed in this direction ultimately because they, you know, it's funny being a writer, by the time you finish a book, you realize, oh, there's like 10 different things I should have said in the book. And um, so now I have to write another one to carry that down the path. And each time I feel like I'm getting a little bit closer to what I need to say. But this one, I think, wraps up a lot of my interests because I'm, I'm very curious, not just about the body, but the state of the body in the modern world with the, the huge number of stresses we have to face, including our environmental crisis and our social crisis now. And I'm, I'm trying to give people a sense of where they might go now. So that's where I've been pointing when did you write your first book? Oh, boy. Um, boy, I think it's been almost, it's been 15 years or 20 years since I wrote Exuberant Animal. And that was, that was a bit of a story there because I, I went the conventional route. I wrote query letters to publishers and editors and was roundly rejected. And I decided, no, I'm really passionate about this subject. I'm going to self-publish this book. And this was before self-publishing was really a thing. And I, I persevered, wrote the book, got it published. Nothing happened for quite a long time. And then people started to read it. So it, um, you have to be really patient on something like that. And it was, it was a stressor to be sure. But um, now I'm getting a little more confidence as a writer and continuing to put that out there. Uh, it's it's interesting that over the course of 15 20 years like how well how you've evolved and maybe the thoroughness of your message mm -hmm. has has improved would you oh i think so yes i i learned more about my audience and more about what i'm trying to say 
and become less concerned about what an editor might happen to say or a reviewer might happen to say. The, the question I always ask myself is, what do I want to say today? <laughs> and, and try and be true to that. I'm not so worried about selling a lot of books. I'm really worried about the creative challenge of saying what I think is important. So that's that's my life as as a writer going forward. And now I'm working on another one called The Enemy is Never Wrong. And that is a look at martial art and martial artistry in kind of a bigger context. So can, we can talk about can, that. Yeah, can you? Yeah, well, the, the, the idea here, okay, the, I had a martial art teacher years ago who almost in passing, he said, look, the enemy is never wrong. And that struck me as, as such a profound thing to say. And I, I've thought about it ever since. And what he was trying to say is that don't get wrapped up in, in judgments about your opponent or your enemy. Your enemy is attacking you. Your enemy is doing behaving badly. Your enemy is doing all these outrageous things, to be sure but don't get wrapped up in judgment about that. Instead, say the enemy is never wrong, the enemy simply is. And so now you are free to adapt and to come up with solutions based on that understanding. The enemy is simply a challenge out there in front of you. And your job is to come up with a creative response. And this is something that Bruce Lee talked about quite a bit as well. He said, be like water, adapt. Don't worry about what the enemy has, has done. And by all means, don't get emotionally involved in judging the enemy because that's only going to get in the way of your response. So I, I just love that teaching. And for all the time I spent in the martial arts, it was probably the most helpful teaching I received. I'd like to explore your book, uh, Beware False Tigers, in, in the context of leadership. Mm. How, how can your book help leaders develop themselves as better leaders? higher performing leaders. Uh, I, I, I feel like there's, there's something there that I, I would like to flush out because it, it's such a cool concept. Right. Well, the, I've, I've read quite a bit in the, the literature about leadership and I find it all interesting. There's plenty of interesting ideas there. And for me, who's someone who is, has studied biology, that I keep getting back to the animals. What, what is it about these primates that we're trying to lead or follow? And how do primates come together and organize themselves? And I keep getting back to what you might call a veterinary approach to leadership. And that simply means recognizing the people in your organization as animals. These are animals who are under various degrees of stress. And one of the secrets of leadership is recognizing that. Because if you, if you don't recognize their animal nature and you don't recognize their stress states, then you're going to lead them in all different kinds of directions. And you may not be helpful to them at all. The idea is precision. You want them to be stressed in the precise manner and keep them in the sweet spot of stress. And this, of course, relates back to the amount of training they're getting, the kind of training, the intensity of training that they're getting, and then being aware of their stress states. And if you're aware of that and can give them the precise amount of stress, then they're going to respond really well. And this is something that would apply to a classroom teacher or in any kind of high stress environment where you look at your animals, you look at your people, say, okay, can I do an inventory of their stress? Can I get a sense of how much stress they're under? And if you can do that, even roughly, then you're going to be better off and they're going to perform better. 
but we just leapfrog over that step so often. We assume that people are all the same. We assume that all these animals are under moderate amounts of stress, and then we proceed from there. But we've we've got to treat them like animals. And that I think is probably the place to begin with leadership. That's phenomenal. What I feel like the connection, because I've never even heard of that approach or, you know, and that, I don't know, using that terminology um, or really having that concept of viewing, viewing the people that you're leading or even the people that you're following as animals and meeting them where they're at, yeah. being empathetic. Yeah. And, and that empathy is, is something that I've talked about as being one of the most important uh, pieces of being an effective leader, but to what degree? Like I, I haven't really explored that and thought about if, if you're viewing them as an animal and recognizing their responses to whatever stressors as something that is is normal it's natural and we can actually uh i mean you could almost predict that when you're under this kind of stress this is the reaction you're going to get from somebody yeah 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 and the problem is and the challenge is right now is that our entire human population is under immense amounts of stress i mean i i've got a list of the the total stress burden that people are under and and we can see this there's plenty of evidence out there for example, we see the incidence of air rage, people on airplanes going off now, and incidents of mental illness and problems at schools and all this stuff. We, we can see that people are under stress. And so for a leader, I think it's a safe assumption that when you have people coming in, new recruits or new students, new clients, new patients, I think you have to assume right out of the gate that these people are under considerable amount of stress at the very beginning. So now you have a challenge. Okay, am I going to put them under more stress? How am I going to do this? How am I going to evaluate their stress going forward? It's it's a big ask. It's a big challenge. And by and large, we're not equipped to do that because in most of our leadership and training programs, we don't talk about people as animals. <laughs> so it's time to do that. Yeah. I don't know if your answer is going to be different from anything that you've already said, because I, I mean, you've been very articulate uh, and, and got right to the point, but over the, the course of your adult life and, and your experiences and just your education, what are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned from those experiences and, and how do they apply to what you teach now right well i'd say a couple of things and i think a lot of people as they get older are going to have similar insights but one of them is to slow down that is that's fundamental i feel like we live in this fast-paced world where this sense of urgency and this sense of temporal poverty is so contagious. I mean, when you see people around you in a big hurry, that's contagious. And so we get involved in this positive feedback loop where people start going faster and then people around them start going faster. Now everybody's going faster. And when you do, your attention, your awareness uh, is contracted and then we're just relying on habit and we make a lot more mistakes that way. So slowing down, and number two, which is quite similar, is trusting your body. And this is where, again, our culture doesn't really emphasize this very much, but the body is this unbelievably sophisticated instrument for learning the world. And 
this gets back to what we, we talked about with neuroplasticity. The body is always sensing the world, sensing other people's emotions, sensing in, in the most subtle kinds of ways. And we just have to kind of get out of the way and let the body do what it does best, which is to learn and sense the world. And that, again, means slowing down and trusting. And the animal's really good at doing what it does. I'm excited to kind of, well, to apply that, that awareness to my dealings with people, you know, mm -hmm. viewing them as animals. And I, I feel like it, it's going to really help my interactions quite a bit. So, uh, you know, thank you very much for sharing that piece of wisdom there. Now, for the, the listeners that want to connect with you and, and, purchase your book or maybe even have you come and speak to their organization what's the best way for people to connect with you well that's easy because um if you just remember exuberant animal that's the name of my website and you can get me through there and all the books are listed there and that kind of thing and, and people can contact me so and i'm happy to do speaking gigs that's that's always something that i enjoy and some of the workshops that i do involve a lot of physical team building. We do the martial arts as a team building sort of um, experience. Um, something I believe is, is experience is the language of the body. So when you pro provide the animal with the right kinds of experience, you're going to get the transformation that you're looking for. So we do, we do spoken conversation we do lecture and presentation and that type of thing but i put a lot of emphasis on experience as well so that's what makes the uh, the workshops really fun where do you do the workshops do you do you go yes yeah, so yeah i've always wanted to have my own dojo my own place where where people can come and train and that would be wonderful and that's something i continue to work on but that's a that's a big lift that's a that's a hard thing to arrange so in the meantime, I do remote workshops. For example, I'm going to France in a few weeks to uh, lead a workshop there. And it's, it's, it's just super exciting. I've come up with this formula, which is a very rhythmic oscillation between lecture presentation and then the movement piece of it. And we do three days. And by the end, people are very exuberant and they're very curious and excited about the ideas, but they've also built a lot of rapport with one another. So the team building part of it's really um, powerful as well. The physicality of, of your workshops and just knowing what I know, it, it makes, when you involve the body in the learning process and get the blood moving, add a little bit of stress, the experience and the lessons learned seem to stay with you yes. a lot better. Yes. And this is something that I realized after spending years in conventional classrooms and just being bored and distracted and listening and listening and and, and that was it. It's like one channel learning that um, I was like any student in the system. I was frustrated with it. And then I got involved in martial arts and we had one sensei, one teacher who would run us through games and drills and movements. And then he would open part of the wall that had a chalkboard behind it. And he would get a little bit of lesson there. And that struck me as the best educational experience I ever had because we've got both channels going. We had the physicality, the movement, we're sweating a little bit and feeling good. Then we're all lined up in a kneeling position and the sensei gives his little lecture about whatever it was on the chalkboard. And you definitely remember what he says. So it, um, for me, that martial art model was a great model for any kind of education that people are trying to do. We've covered a lot of ground, and I, I, I feel like there, there's so much to explore with you. Um, but given limited amount of time, what uh, is there anything that we didn't touch on that that you feel 
we we should before we go. Wow. Well, we could do hours on this, but there there was one thought that came to me when because you have an interest in leadership, and I've thought about um, Native people, Indigenous people, paleo situations, and from what I've read with the anthropology is that there was always an emphasis on servant leadership. And this is something we continue to hear about today. And there's people who write books about servant leadership. And that's, that's a really great idea. It's a great concept. But the other one that comes up in paleo conversations, Native people, they talk about contextual leadership. And this is really interesting for me, because if you are in a hunter-gatherer tribe, people would recognize not just one ultimate leader for everything. They would emphasize, they would recognize leadership in context. So maybe you go out on a hunt and you've got one particular person who's really good at leading the hunt. Everybody turns to that person and you go out and you, you have your experience and then you come back to camp, but now you're doing something else. So maybe you're building a hut. Well, now there's another person who's really good at leadership in that context, you turn to that person. And then maybe you're around the campfire that night, somebody's telling stories. Now you look to somebody else in that context. So leadership is more fluid in that world. And that's something I think we can aspire to as well, because in the modern world, everything is so documented and we have leaders who perform their leadership in every context. And that doesn't make as much sense to me. So I think once again, we can look to paleo peoples and native peoples for some inspiration there. That is so applicable in the fire service when operating on scene. Yeah. Yep. You know, certain individuals are more adept at using the hydraulic tools to, to mm -hmm. cut open a car um, and others that are you know, more adept at throwing ladders up to a third floor window. You know, you, you want those people to do those tasks. Yeah, yeah. You know, you have everybody else that, you know, when you do training, you develop the other people so that they can be better at those skills. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you want that person that's really good at it doing the teaching. Right, right. And this means that the leader, the ultimate leader, has to be sensitive and observant and be willing to give up power in those circumstances to other individuals who are performing at a high level and just say, okay, look, this guy over here is really good at this thing. I'm going to turn it over to him or her and let it go there. And so this contextual thing is, I think, really valuable for everybody. Here's something interesting because I, I I've talked about that same thing before, uh, where I've read about it being utilized in uh, small teams of of special operations, mm -hmm. uh, you know, soldiers, sailors, Marines. They they all have specialties. And when the operation calls for that specialty, that's the one that's leading the charge. Right. And, um, and I applied it to a lot of the things that I was doing in, in the fire department. It, sometimes it wasn't received well, uh, but for the people that I empowered, mm -hmm. it was huge for them. And, mm -hmm. I, and I feel like the benefit was experienced throughout everybody that was involved, including me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, maybe from the outside looking in, it wasn't, you know, what you're supposed to do, but it really is a, an awesome way to lead. Yeah. Yeah, it's organic and it's dynamic. And I think the only danger in that is that sometimes you might give up too much control over a circumstance and then you might have to reel it back in. But the advantages are huge when you empower people, then uh, you share the love, you know, you share that, 
it just makes people feel better and they participate more. I really appreciate you having this conversation with me and sharing your perspective. Um, it, it's, it's really cool to, to see it from a different angle and really have that science validate and, and really enlighten other ideas and, and concepts. So, I mean, it, it's so awesome, man. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, yeah, this is what keeps me going and what, uh, you know, gets me out of bed in the morning because every day is a new discovery and getting to watch human behavior and various attempts to, to lead and to create performance and watch how people do it. It's, it's really exciting stuff. And I'm, I'm always inspired by other leaders who are putting it together and standing up. I mean, it's, it's a risky business to be a leader and to try and get teams to perform at a high level. It's, it's filled with judgment calls and there's a lot of courageous people out there doing it. So I'm, I'm really inspired. For all those listening, um, I'm going to have the link to to Frank's website in the show notes. So please go check him out. I mean, his website's really freaking cool. So uh, go check it out. Check out his books. I, I'm sure that everybody listening to this is going to find something, if not a, a bunch of stuff on his website that, that you're going to find valuable. So check it out. Right. Yeah, there is a lot of slideshow content on the website, and I encourage people to use that. The only thing that's missing is the voiceover. And, you know, for that, you'd have to get in touch with me, but you can still do a lot with what's there. So feel free to use it. Yeah. Nice. Man. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.